and I have two music stands, so I hope you guys are ready for a revival today. Um, we're going to be in Genesis, and we're going to start in chapter 6, because today we're going to be covering Noah's Ark. So if you guys would, I would encourage you guys to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, which is the very beginning of the Bible, and I believe it's on page 5 here of the Pew Bibles. It is on page 5. All right, so here we go. All right. And so I think everyone's pretty familiar with Noah's Ark. I mean, it's a pretty familiar story, whether you've been in church your whole life or you have not been in church. Most people have heard of Noah's Ark. And this book is found in Genesis, which is the beginning. And one of the big themes about Genesis is like, we see how we got here, but who God is and how we are to relate to him. And we see in this book that, we are not good people, but we, but he is a good God. And so it's dependent upon him and not ourselves. And so this story, um, in Genesis is like we fly through a whole lot of people through God acting and we hear countless stories in these very small chapters of like evilness and wickedness. And, um, and then we get to Noah and we have like kind of an in-depth story. And so this story for Noah, I don't think is covered very often in churches. Um, it's borderline two sermons. Okay. And so we're going to be covering a lot of scripture, but I talk fast, very fast. And so you guys can be confident that we will get out on time. All right. Um, and I want to be a good steward of, of your attention and the text. And we're, so just so you guys know, we're going to be looking at seven movements of this story, but we're not looking verse by verse. We don't need to look at the, what God meant by every animal, you know, we're not looking like that. We're looking at broad movements. So we're going to be looking at paragraphs at a time and we're going to pull out and we're not going to have to dig very deep to get, um, to these points. So I encourage your patience, but I'm uh, excited about this. So I'm going to pray for us one more time before we jump in. Lord, we thank you so much for this time that you've allowed us to gather. And we just ask Lord that you would speak powerfully through your word and Lord that we would just be faithful um, not only in our listening, but also faithful in our responses to you. We ask that you would speak clearly to us, that you convict us as you see fit, and that you would encourage us to follow you with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are going to jump in to verse uh, 11 of chapter 6. So again, page 5, verse 11, uh, yeah, verse 11 of chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. So right out of the gate, we're seeing the word corrupt is mentioned a lot of times in this, these very few verses. Um, wickedness. And in verse 12, it says, for every creature has corrupted its way on the earth. And this is going to tell us two things about God is one that God sees every single creature and that two, he can see if they're doing what he has created them to do or not. And so right away, our first point that we're going to look at is that God can see God sees and God is not oblivious to what is going on in the world. He sees everyone and everything he sees thoughts, motives, and actions. And what he sees in this chapter or this section is that he concludes that the world is corrupt. The earth is filled with wickedness. And for us, if you get into a car and you start driving downtown, you do not have to look very far until you can agree with that statement. You're going to be passing jerk drivers. You're going to be passing 
people that are not doing what they're supposed to do. I mean, like driving downtown and we see horrible things like prostitution and, and drug addicts just roaming the streets all the time. And you can see the wickedness, not only in the world, but you can see it affecting and killing the people that are involved in it. And so um, if you saw, you know, and maybe even on this week, you've seen some of the corrupt stories in on social media. I know that this week in Ohio, there was a, a human trafficking of like 160 people were arrested. I mean, this stuff happens all the time. We are constantly dealing with corrupt stories in social media. And so do you ever see any of these horrible things and ask, if God sees this, then why isn't he doing something about it? I mean, that seems like a reasonable question for us, doesn't it? But the real problem is that we don't see if God is doing something about it. See, unlike God, who sees everything perfectly, our eyesight is finite. We are stuck to the to what is immediately in front of us. So if God is doing something in that situation, we may find out what he's doing, or we may never find out what he's doing. But we don't know. You know, we're, we're just assuming based on our, on our own perception, and we must see that our perception is nowhere close to as good as what God's perception is. Um, so we have to see God not as we see ourselves, but we must see God as he reveals himself in scripture. And so we cannot impose our limitations on God. Um, if I don't think he sees what's going on in this world, that is greatly going to affect the way I interact with the world. If I don't think he sees something, then I will f- act like he does not see me. And if that's the case, I'm going to live in whatever way I see fit. But that's not really what's going on. I mean, I cannot live in any way I see fit because I know that things like that will cause harm to me, um, others, and, you know, my family. And, like, here's an example for you. Like, I can see very well out of my right eye, and I can see horribly out of my left eye. If we are playing catch, and I'm looking this way, and you throw, the ball will probably hit me in the head, and I will not have any idea. I cannot blame you because I did not see the ball. That's not your fault. You guys threw the ball. It was my my idea or my job to catch the ball, not um, have you understand what my limitations are. And so, again, it's very easy for us to see all the wickedness that is outside of ourselves. We can see the wickedness outside of the world, but we have a really hard time seeing the wickedness inside our own hearts. We're blinded to that. Yet God sees all those things. God sees perfectly. He is not fooled by our limitations, and his vision is not limited like ours. And so God not only sees, but he also interacts with his creation. If we continue into verse uh, 14 here, we see, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 400 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof um, finishing the sides of all the ark within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the side of the ark, make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. And so we see that God gives uh, Noah some commands here. He gives him commands to make a boat, and they're very specific. I mean, he gives them in the materials. He gives them dimensions. Everything about this boat that he needs is right here. And something that has been pointed out to me is that there is no plans for a bathroom in this boat which is kind of interesting and maybe something that has to do with the sanctification factors later on. But but if we continue on, understand that I am to bring a flood, floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. 
everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. You are also to bring into the ark two of the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten. Gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that the Lord had commanded him. And so God wants Noah to understand that he's bringing a flood to destroy the earth. And God will establish his covenant with Noah. Noah will bring his family and two of every creatures onto this boat. And this information is conveyed through detailed plans, which are called instructions. And so this is going to lead us to our second point in this text, is that God instructs God instructs his people. And like I said before at the beginning of this, uh, at our introduction, there really isn't a whole lot of details about Noah's life um, if we were to, say, compare him to Abraham. Abraham, we see so much part, parts of his life, but for Noah, it's, it's very short. Like, we see his family lineage unto this point, really. And what we can gather from this is, like, we don't know where he went to school. We don't know his best friends. We don't know very much about him before this situation. But we do know from chapter 9 that he ends up becoming a farmer. He says he's a man of the soil. And so we know that what his career was after the flood, but we don't really know what his career was before the flood. And so I'm guessing if he was a sailor, it probably would have said something like that. Like this guy is like a seasoned veteran sailor and God picked him, but that's not what happened. God just gives him the plans. And if Noah, you know, like, I don't know if you're, if even if you were a seasoned sailor, constructing a 450 foot boat seems like a pretty monumental task. And so these instructions from Noah must have been welcomed. I mean, it's a huge project. Anybody would like some kind of help. But if, like, the God of the universe is telling you that he's about to flood the earth and he gives you instructions, those instructions are probably going to be pretty important to you. And these plans are not only going to be pretty important, but because God is doing the flooding and God is providing you for the plans, there's probably a high likelihood of his plan succeeding. So building off of our last point, if we know that our vision is corrupted, then we of all people should be looking for God's instructions. And not just any instructions, but perfect instructions. And God has given us that. God has given us his word. He has given us his church and he has given us his spirit to guide him. And that is an incredibly valuable resource for us. And so we must ask ourselves, do we value God's instructions? James 1.5 says that God loves to give wisdom which is also instruction, right? And so how do we just receive his instruction? Maybe prayer comes to your mind. Maybe quality time in the Bible, you know, both personal and corporately. Maybe rest or silence and solitude. That's a way to be able to hear from God. Maybe consistent church attendance. But these, all, these activities all require personal interactions. You know, like if I order a box of furniture, it comes with instructions, but I must open the instructions. I must read the instructions. I must apply the instructions. Otherwise, I will not get what I'm attempting to um, produce. And so to hear from God, we must not only hear from him, but we should do what he hears. Um, he tells us um, how as he instructs. Like we must interact with him and seek his instruction on a daily basis. And we should be able to pray like Noah in verse 22 that says, and Noah did this. Noah did everything that God had commanded him. 
God's instructions are not just suggestions. God's instructions are commands. And God's instructions are not, um, they're not just because he feels like it. God's instructions are for life or death. And so if we continue into chapter 7 right now, verse 1. But words to Noah, enter the ark, you and all of your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. You are to take with you seven pairs, a male and his female, of all clean animals, and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and his female, and seven pairs, male and female, of the birds of the sky, in order to keep offspring alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and everything I have made, I will wipe off the face of the earth. And again, Noah did everything that the Lord had commanded him. So the Lord tells Noah to enter the ark, you and all of your household. And in seven days from now, he's going to make it rain. And God says that you and your family are going to be saved. And again, Noah did, like we said, Noah did everything that the Lord had commanded him. And we saw how Noah's obedience led to the, you know, with the Lord's instruction were commended at this point. But now the stakes have become higher. Things have changed a little bit because now his family is on the line. It's no longer just building an ark. It's now entering the ark. It's trusting into the ark to do its job. And so here is our third movement. And that is that God calls uh, people to faith. God calls people to faith. And there's a big difference between obedience and faith. If you think about, like, here's my kids, for example. If I tell my children to go brush your teeth, they will stomp their feet up the stairs. I will hear the water run for two seconds. They will slam their toothbrush down and then stomp their feet down the stairs and said, I did it. And yes, technically you did. But if they really believed that this was going to fix their teeth, they would go upstairs. They would brush their teeth. They would floss their teeth for the two minutes that they're supposed to be doing it. And then they would come downstairs and say, thank you, Dad, because now my teeth are a little bit cleaner than they were before. You know, that's not the kind of response that we end up getting. And so if we read a little bit more, we're going to flush out a couple more things that we can do to kind of really um, pin this into to Noah's life a little bit. Starting in verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood came, and water covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the flood waters. From the animals that are clean, and from the animals that are not clean, and from the birds and every creature that crawls on the ground, two of each, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, just as God had commanded him. Seven days later, the flood waters came. And so, again... Here is kind of where it gets interesting for our 600-year-old Noah. The first clouds start to appear in the sky, and it looks like it's about to happen. He starts seeing the rain coming down, and God tells Noah to enter the ark. Noah must instruct his whole family to get into this ark, and to think that there is no tension in this moment is not realistic, because here is when the doubt is really going to begin to creep in. The questions start racing through Noah's mind. Was God telling the truth? Or was he not? Did I follow the instructions properly? Or did I not? Is this boat really going to hold up? Is God really going to save us? And I don't know about you guys, but have you ever experienced that moment where you're standing there and everything in your body is telling you to run, and yet you know in your heart that you're supposed to stand firm? And that is a 
terrifying and wonderful experience all in the same time, but your body is at torn between itself. It's like God is telling you to put everything on the line, and at the same time, it's only God that can 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 save you. It's none of this other stuff that can save you. And so it's like necessity and desire meet at this single moment, and it starts forcing your hand to make the right decision. And so when we think about something like that, when was the last time you have experienced that kind of tension? Did you stand strong or did you run in fear? And see, the thing that we can notice is that both standing strong and fear are both powers. Both of us caused us to do something. But the difference is, is that standing strong in the spirit will build you up while running in fear will move you, but it tears you down. And like, it doesn't matter if you have, you know, made good decisions in your life or bad decisions. Everybody wants to be built up. Nobody wants to be broke down. We naturally want to grow. We naturally want to look, be able to look back and say, yes, we have increased. Something has gone right from the decisions that we made or the outcomes that we have chosen. But that doesn't always happen because it's like, again, the fear and, the, and standing strong, out of those two things, fear is always seems to be the louder voice. You know, we always want to give in to that, and that's because we tend to trust ourselves. And our body is telling us to run, so that's what we want to do. But we don't really know what the answers are. God does. And so if he tells us to stand firm, if he tells us to take that step, it's our job to trust him, despite what our body is telling us. We have to be able to choose him now in the calmness so that when the storm comes, we'll be able to make that decision a little bit easier. Faith is the antidote to fear, and faith is the greater power. When God calls us to faith, our job is to trust him, and that builds our relationship with him on a, on a firm foundation. He calls us to faith so that we can learn to trust him more. If we continue in verse 11 of chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were open, and the rain fell on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. On that same day, Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephetheth, entered the ark along with Noah's wife and his three sons' wives. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all livestock according to their kinds, all creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, and every flying creature, all the birds and every winged creature according to their kind. Two of every creature that has breath of life in it came to Noah and entered the ark. Those that entered, male and female of every creature, entered just as God had commanded them. Then the Lord shut him in. The floodgates are opened. The vast watery deeps, depths burst open. Forty days and forty nights of rain fell on the earth. The flood has come, and this is God's judgment for the corruption on the earth. And so that's going to bring us to our next point, which is God produces judgment. God, sorry, God pronounces judgment. God pronounces judgment. And I want to point out that the text introduces this point here, but yet it deals with it in two different ways. In the first paragraph that we're in, is that this judgment is going to be looking at the aspect of Noah and his family. So we're going to be looking at the righteous in the midst of this judgment, what God does for the righteous. 
and Noah and his family of, of all kinds of, and, you know, all the kinds of the creatures that are entered the ark. And this is because they are associated with Noah, they are saved. It's by proxy. And see, the salvation is not because of Noah. It's because of the proxy of Noah. God has chosen God. Or Noah has, God has chosen Noah. And Noah has found favor with God. And because of that, his family is able to enter this ark. And this statement should leave those who trust in the Lord to confidence. If the Lord shuts someone in, who can open it? God's promises are guaranteed. And really, that is the only way that Noah can do this. Can you imagine what it's like to be like to live to 600 years old? I mean, like I'm 40 right now, and I don't think I have another 40 in me. So to get to 600, like I cannot imagine how that would go. But then experiencing the 40 days and the 40 nights of rain with all your children, with all your in-laws, possibly grandchildren, two of every kind of animal, no bathroom. Like this takes all the faith that you have to be incredibly to be incredibly confident. Like you must be confident in the object of your faith. And so don't you want to have that kind of confidence in everyday circumstances? Like, if I look back at this week, I, I was trying real hard to trust God, to go to God as best as he revealed to me. And there were still very many moments in this last week where I wish that my confidence was stronger. I wish that I could trust him more. And that has nothing to do with his goodness, because when Saturday came around, all my problems were solved. Yet the only thing that changed throughout that was me. I was up, I was down, but God remained the same. He carried me through. And so I want that confidence to continue. I want to be able to look back and see him working in my life and for that to affect not only last week, but to affect this week going forward. And so we have to know that as we're spending time with him, he's going to test us, he's going to grow us, and he's going to lead us through trials and situations like this that are going to change us. Um, if you guys had that confidence last week, how would your week have been different? Would it have been less stressful or more stressful? Would anything that you tried to accomplish have been accomplished differently? I mean, we can't change yesterday, and we can't change last week, but we can change the future. And so if we make that decision today to put our trust into God, to respond to his calls of faith, then we know that tomorrow will be different because he's going to be interacting with us. If we continue into chapter or verse 17, the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth and all the mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished, those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils. Everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl to the birds of the sky, and that they wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark. And that and the waters um, surged on the earth 150 days. So the water increased and lifted up this 450-foot arc. The water surged, covering the highest mountains by 20 feet. Every creature perished, 
from the face of the earth. Mankind, livestock, birds, everything. This is 150 days of surging water. And like this may have been rough for Noah to go through, but it was far worse for everybody else. I don't know if you guys have ever been to the beach and been hit by a wave, but it is intense, especially a rogue wave when you don't expect it. Like water seems soft and, you know, whatever, but it has this intense power behind it. And when you get hit by a wave, it just knocks you off your feet and it may skip you across the, the bottom of the floor of the ocean. But like the power of that wave is like, when you look at the ocean, you're like, oh, this is beautiful. And then when it hits you, it changes the, the way you view it because now it has earned your respect, you know? And so if we think of this where there's mountains higher than, or water higher than a mountain, like this is more than just a rogue wave coming through. This is, this is vast amounts of water. This is not like you just hold your breath and swim to the top. There's nothing that you can do about this. Like you're not going to be able to survive something that comes like this. And it sounds really awful, you know, to be just to see something that everybody's dying. You know, like the world is, is receiving due penance for its choices. And it's easy for us to get caught up on the, in the destruction and to look at that and get fixated on it. But the topic of God's judgment is more than just destruction. You know, if you think of like a cake and you have this cake and it calls for two cups of sugar, yet you put two cups of salt in it, that cake is not going to be very good anymore. The cake is not going to serve its purpose. The cake has been tainted by salt. And so the only thing that cake is good for is to get rid of it at that point. And so what we can see from this is that if God is destroying all of creation, he is saying that everything in creation has been tainted by sin. All of it is not functioning the way it's supposed to be. And so it will glorify God by receiving its, his righteous and perfect judgment um, as he has promised to right all wrongs. All sins will be accounted for and justice must be served. That judgment is God's to pronounce and not ours. And he will bring his full wrath to punish sin. Um, so when this comes to it, when we look at the sins in our lives, are we confident and are we shut in? Or do we feel like we're laying down under God's condemnation and wrath? I know it seems harsh to think of God's judgment and trashing and the whole world being destroyed or flooded underwater. But at the same time, what do you think that the people witnessing Noah were thinking of during that day? You don't build a 450-foot ark in like a day. A 450-foot ark is a project. Everybody saw this 450-foot ark. So the people had to see something is going on. They had to ask questions. And then they heard, when they asked him questions, I could only assume that the answer that he received was laughter after that. Why are you going to build a 450-foot boat out here? There's, not, there's no lake. There's not going to be any rain. You're, you're losing your mind. And they went on living just like normal. Yet at the same time, when Noah got in the ark, they all, you know, they're not laughing now. Their, their justice has been served to them. So if we continue in chapter 8, see that God remembered Noah, as well as the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded from the earth, and by the end of 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. The ark came to a rest in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. So God remembered Noah, and because God remembered Noah, God acts. 
God displays his great power and sovereignty, and he closes the floodgates. The rain stops. He causes the winds to blow, lowering the water levels until the ark rests on the tops of the mountains. And God, but the biggest part that we see from this is that God has kept his promise to Noah. And so our next point is that God keeps his promises. God is faithful is another way of saying that. We are always, but we as a church, I think, are very quick to forget that. You know, we're kind of a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of people. And we need to remember that God remembers us and that he does keep his promises. So if he is faithful, we might have to wonder, why do we often doubt him? And I think that comes from within us. God remembers because he is perfect, and he says it and he does it. That's the way he is. It is his character. It's his very nature. Yet... He is not using manipulation to get something. He doesn't tell us to do something so he can grab something out of us. He just does something because that's who he is, because he loves us. But we have a hard time seeing that because we are different, and we are different in two ways. And if we look at these sets of questions, we'll, we'll see that. Like It's always said, a man is as good as his word. And so we must ask, how good is your word? We tend to overpromise and underdeliver often. And we may ask, well, how would your spouse rate your faithfulness? Or how would your friends rate your faithfulness? How would God rate your faithfulness? And you may think about those questions and feel bad. Maybe you feel overcome by guilt. And that's because you know you've failed and you haven't kept your promises. And that since you haven't kept your promises, that must be dealt with. And so the way that we tend to do that is I'm going to try harder tomorrow. But that's not how that works because we end up failing and then it produces more guilt. And so the cycle continues, and we end in this guilty sadness of never accomplishing what we're trying to do. But if we look at the same questions in another view, we say, well, how good is your word? And you think, I never lie. I'm pretty good. How would your spouse and your friends rate your faithfulness? And you say, well, I'm better. I think I'm better than my spouse, and I'm the most reliable friend, so I must clearly be the most trustworthy. And if you say, you know, to the question, how would God rate your faithfulness? And you say, better than most then would you think that makes you a good Christian? But that doesn't make you a good Christian. That makes you a Pharisee. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to earn God's favor. At that point, what you're trying to do is instead of receiving his promises freely through grace, what you're trying to do is to pin him into a corner and say that I have done this thing, now you owe me blessing. You must give it to me. And that's not how God works. God keeps his promises because that's who he is, not because of um, trying to get something out of it. But for us, we act either out of arrogance because we're trying to um, pin him down for our own, bless- our own blessings or we're trying to absolve our own guilt by trying harder. So either way, we're really just thinking about ourselves. Like that's really the key to that. No matter if you're doing it for the right reason, you know, if you're keeping the promises or you're not keeping your promises, if you're doing it for the wrong reason, then you're still not honoring God. You're doing it for an alternative motive as to which one you see is better. So really the truth that we see in that is that we only care about ourselves, but God cares about us. So um, in order for us to keep our promises in a godly way, our motives have to change. And those motives cannot come from within ourselves, but they have to come from God. And this topic continues as we continue in verse 15. Or verse uh, verse 5. The water continued to recede until the 10th month, and the 10th month on the last day of the month. The tops of the mountains were visible, and after 40 days Noah opened the window of the ark and that he had made. 
And he sent out a raven and went back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see whether the water on the earth's surface had gone down. But But the dove found no resting place for its foot. It returned to him in the ark because water covered the surface of the whole earth. He reached out and brought it into the ark to himself. So Noah waited seven more days and sent out the dove from the ark again. When the dove came to him that evening, there was a plucked olive leaf in its beak. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down. After he had waited another seven days, he went out of the dove, or went, sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. In the 601st year, in the first month, of the first day of the month, the water that had covered the earth was dried up. Then Noah removed the ark's cover and saw the surface of the ground was drying. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. So I want to point out the time, the time frames here. God opened the sky in chapter 6 on the second month, and then he closed the sky in chapter 8 on the seventh month, where that's when, you know, it finally stops. So we have five months of the water for the water to start subsiding. The ark rests on the mountain, and by this time the birds are sent out. So after all this time, from the beginning to now, we're some 300 days into this trip. And I think that gets lost a lot of times is to think of what it would be like to be stuck on a boat for 300 days. You know, this is a 10-month process. And I heard a quote recently, and I can't remember who it's from, but God is rarely early but never late is the quote I heard. I can only imagine the conditions on this ark after 10 months. Like, again, I know how hard it is to take care of our own house, so to think of taking care of this many people and this many animals on a, on a confined space, you know, like a yacht has never felt so small in human history. Uh, you have the tension, the frustration, and the smell. But there's not enough, you know, caffeine or self-help books in the world to, to get you through this. So, so how did Noah do it? And Noah couldn't look inside himself. He couldn't just try harder for tomorrow to absolve his guilt. And he couldn't just hold his righteousness over his family because they have nothing to offer him. The only thing he could do is trust in God to keep his promises, which is which produced hope in Noah. If we look at the raven that he sends out, Noah can't tell the raven where to look. He doesn't know where to, you know, how to fly or to give the raven any advice. He just trusts God with the only thing that is at his disposal. So he opens the window and lets the the raven fly out. He sends out the dove and the dove comes back with an empty handed. But does that affect Noah? Noah waits seven days. He trusts in the Lord and he continues. He sends the dove out again. But this time there's an olive branch in in the dove's beak. And this produces hope in Noah because he knows that if the dove can find a home, God will also produce a home for him as well. So if you have hope, your hope in high in God right now is high, that's something to celebrate and you should be appreciative and you should be able to thank him for that regularly in your prayer. But if you're feeling hopeless right now, we may have to start with something like, well, what in your life is making you feel so hopeless? Like, what do you need in your life to solve that issue? If you have, say you need money, well, your bills are going to be due again next month. You're going to be into the same problem. If you say your hope is in your friends and you just needed their comfort, your friends are eventually going to leave and decease. I mean, that's the the nature of the world, and you will be out of their counsel. And if your hope is in your career, eventually you're going to break down and you're not going to be able to do that work anymore. The only one who can truly give you hope as he solves your problems is God. He has the knowledge, he has the power, he has the desire and the love to do it. And so if you think about this upcoming week, there is a very high probability that you're going to get frustrated, you're going to be angry, mistreated, insulted, 
and face many other problems. And at the moment, at that moment, will you listen to what the world tells you to solve the problems? Or will you trust in the promises of God to bring you hope? Only God keeping his promises can give us the hope um, that we truly need. And what's interesting about hope is that it matures. If we read in verse 15, we can see that. Then God spoke to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives came out, all the animals, all the creatures that crawled, and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark by their families. So God tells Noah to go out of the ark to the dry earth, bring out every single living creature, let them be fruitful and multiply. And this reminds us of Genesis 128, the, the creation mandate, where God had told that to, to uh, Adam and Eve. So what did Noah and his family do? They come out of the ark to a new world, a forever changed world. And so that's going to lead us to our sixth point, that God grants new life. God grants new life. God is the author of life. And multiple times this text has said the breath has mentioned the breath of life. And we have a huge contrast between the beginning of the story and now. The world was filled with wickedness at the very beginning, awaiting uh, judgment. And now we have just Noah and his family, and the judgment has passed. It's like a reboot of the creation account. And yet what's interesting with this is that we're only, you know, eight chapters into the into the creation account, and yet God has already kind of started it over. And so we see when people are left to their own devices, wickedness and corruption overtake them. But when God intervenes, the opportunity for new life emerges. He restores, he redeems, he changes, he corrects. He brings life from death, and only he can do that. So have you seen that kind of change in your life? You know, everyone wants to do better and work towards progress, like we said. And, um, you know, d- despite the decisions that you may have made in the past, God can use those for good or for bad. So when we look, so as of right now, when you look back, do you feel like you have new life? Maybe we need to look at, at what this may look like. Noah, Noah doesn't get handed a keys to a mansion when he gets off the boat. He doesn't get handed a winning lottery ticket. He does, he's never promised that everything is going to be okay at this time, that everything is now going to be smoothly, smooth sailing. You know, everything's gone. You, you went through the hard part already. Noah just hears God call him, and then Noah responds. That's it. He joyfully gets off the boat with his family. He's trusting in God more now than he did some 370 days ago. So the test to assess our life is not based on prosperity, but it's based on our relationship with God. The stronger your relationship is with him, the more balanced we become. He becomes our strength and our shield. He walks us through the valleys of the shadow of death. He dries our tears and calms our souls. If we think about Moses in the desert, when he was standing before the promised land, and God says, you know what, you go, I'm going to stay. Moses says, I don't want that unless you're coming with us. Like, you, if you possess the world, but you lack God, you have nothing. That's death. But if you lack everything and you have God, that's true life. So right now, do you have true life? Can you look back and see where God has moved you? Is how he's changed your desire, how he's given you a new heart? Do you respond in manners now that are uncharacteristic to how you would have responded 5, 10, or 15 years ago? 
we need to remember that true life is a gift from God. He freely gives that life to all who call upon him. And that life grows and matures as time continues. Everything else in this world else in this world will fade away and die. And so finally, in our last section here, in verses 20, let's go ahead and read. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He looked some he took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of human heart is evil from youth onward, and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest time, cold and heat, summer and winter, the day and night will not cease. And this, and all this is the, you know, we think of Noah gets off the boat, and his very next building project is to build an altar. Right. Um, he builds an altar to the Lord. He makes sacrificing sacrifices and he makes an offering to God. And we know that this aroma is pleasing to God. God is happy with the sacrifice. And he, God also responds with a promise to Noah. And so both of these things we can see like God is approving this worship of him. God is approving Noah's sacrifice. And so finally, we see that what Noah is really giving God is, is worship and God receives that. And so our final point today is that God receives worship. God receives our worship. And although various aspects of creation are brought into this story, you see rain, you see flood, you see mountains, wind, sun. You know, Noah never praises the wind or the gopher wood for the ark or his craftsmanship. Noah builds an altar to the one, uh, to the only one worthy of his worship, and that is the Lord. It, it should draw our attention to think of how we worship the Lord as well. Like if we see, we need to see worship as far more than just singing a song. Worship is giving till it hurts because the conviction, conviction is so strong. We have to ask ourselves, where do we show honor? What captivates our respect? Where do we find beauty? What are we willing to sacrifice for? Where do we find excitement and joy? Where do we see others seeing value? Or maybe what fulfills you? And the answer to these questions is where our worship is going. And again, it should be going to the Lord. If we find anything in greater value than the Lord, if we find anything with greater beauty than the Lord, if we find anything greater with, uh, with greater worth than the Lord, then we are guilty of idolatry and we are not worthy to be in the presence of God. All of the greatness in creation points to him. He is the fulfillment of everything we desire. We need to see that. We must choose him over everything else. We have to see that God is not the problem, but that we are. So if he is the only one worthy of our worship, and he's willing um, to receive our worship, what is going to change us to want to give him worship? I think becomes the question. And see, there's an issue with this story that we have to notice, point out as well that it's going to help us with that. See, God pronounced judgment on the wicked back at the very beginning of this story. And then he floods the earth. Yet at the same time, we know right now that there's still wickedness outside. So either we have this problem that either God can't solve the problem of wickedness or God hasn't fully solved the problem of wickedness yet. And if he can't solve the problem, then why leave one family? 
you would just destroy everything and start over. But if you can solve it, you would leave one. And through that one, you would bring redemption. And so what we see is that Noah didn't save himself, but Noah was saved by God. God chose to use an ark to save Noah. The judgment you see of God was the flood. And the flood poured down on the ark just like it poured down on all the rest of the earth. It shielded Noah and his family from God's judgment. And and as John Owen is quick to point out, that's exactly what Christ has done for you. He went into the middle of the worst storm for us. He took the full wrath of God that we deserved for the penalty of our sins. And so that all who put their faith in him, all who enter him, are shielded from the very wrath of God that he shields us from. The ark that is Christ didn't just rise above water. It rose triumphantly above death. He did all that the Lord had commanded him. And now our risen Savior is seated next to the right hand of the Father, interceding for his flock. Because he, because we have failed on every level, we have to trust in him because he, to save ourselves because he did everything that the Lord commanded him. And yet, for the price that he paid, we ended up being shut in through trusting in him. And so our job is to see that our hope is in him. Our goal is to put our trust in his promises. And our, and our ultimate desire should be to respond to his call today. And so let's go ahead and pray for that strength right now. Lord, we thank you so much for this time that you've allowed us to reflect on Noah's Ark, Lord. And we just thank you for you revealing to us who you are through this story. And we thank you, Lord, that you saved Noah and his family and that we can see that it is not because Noah was a perfect man, but that you showed him great grace and that you drew him close to you and that through his obedience to you, through his trusting in you, that is how he was saved. We ask, Lord, for the same thing for us, that you would just allow some of these points to sit in our hearts and allow them to affect us in this week coming up, allow us to want to honor you, to respond to your calls and to step out in faith. We ask, Lord, that you would be able to use us in ways to grow your kingdom and that we would be able to respond to your the Spirit's prompting and the calls um, just to be able to know that our confidence is in the work that Christ has done for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.